So last week, we looked at this terrible division going on. They were charging way too much interest. They shouldn't have been charging any interest to their fellow Jews. They're selling the Jews into uh, to Gentiles. And we, what we're going to see today is the biggest difference, I think, between the rich nobles that were doing this and Nehemiah, who's also a rich noble. And he's not doing this. And the reason why is twofold. I think we'll see this in the text. He has a love for the people, so he shows them compassion. But more importantly, I think on top of that, you have something called the fear of God. And this will play itself out in the text. I didn't do what they did because I fear God. And then I did these kind things for the people because I fear God. Two primary words in the Hebrew and Greek, yirah is the Hebrew word. And in the Greek, it's phobos. We use it to describe the term phobia. When you think of phobia, though, you're thinking of some irrational fear. But in the Greek, it's not necessarily that. It can be a, a godly fear and an ungodly fear. And we'll, I'll really kind of bring those out in the text in just a moment. But before we go there, you need to know there are two gutters of false teaching when it comes to believers in Jesus Christ and fearing God. And I bet, in a congregation of this size, I bet we've all fallen into one of the two gutters. One of the gutters is this. I am scared to death of God. I am terrorized by God. Yes, I'm his son or daughter, but I am scared to death of him. That is a false teaching about the fear of God. The opposite, though, is also true, and the opposite is this. I've heard believers say this. I don't fear God because I love him. So there's no reason to fear him. I love him. He is my father. And I would say that, too, is also false teaching. That's taking it too far on either end of the spectrum. Uh, this, this, this fear of God, I will tell you, it's not simple reverence that many of us have thought before. It's just kind of, I kind of reverence him. No, it's, it's much more than that. And I will tell you this, though, fearing God should never drive you away from the Lord. Actually, what we'll see in the text is fearing God drives you towards God in his mercy. It causes you to run to the throne, not run away from it. And you say, well, how's that possible? Well, we'll see it. You'll see it. Take a look. This is the word of God. Chapter 5 of Nehemiah, verse 14 and 15. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, which is one-fifth of an ounce for those people that would care. Um, even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Now, for the first time, we find out that Nehemiah is described as a governor. We knew he was a leader, but a governor? We didn't fully grasp that. And now it's been 12 years. Now, you may shake your head at that and go, wait a second. His dialogue with King Artaxerxes, there was no, in I guess there was no intent in Nehemiah's words that, by the way, I'm going to be there 12 years. That wasn't really understood from our line of reasoning. Maybe, maybe Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, rebuilt the wall, returned to Susa, which is where he started out, and then came back to Jerusalem for another 12 years. We don't know. 
But note this, Nehemiah has great authority. He's the governor, but note how he rules. Are you catching it? It's more like he's ruling like a father to these people. He removes the interest on the loans. He buys back the Jews from slavery, cancels debts, lightens the Jewish taxes by refusing his governor's allowance. It makes it clear he never ate the governor's food allowance. Never. Uh, As a matter of fact, to do so would be to tax the people for that rightful provision, but he does not do it. Ultimately, we find out he lives on lower standards than the governors before him. Why? It's because he seeks what is best for the brothers, but why? He loves the people, he fears God. So he denies himself for their sake. He says, I do not do so because of the fear of God. Can I tell y'all one of the reasons why I love verse-by-verse exposition, and you should too, not to be a little bit over the top on this, but I'm right on this one, okay? (laughs) The reason why you love exposition done verse-by-verse is because that's the way you read everything. And number two, and I'm not saying you can't have thematic sermons and topics, I'm not saying that at all, but what I'm saying is that as you study these verses, you know what happens? These topics bubble up at the top of the surface, and you just kind of grab them, and then you teach on them. And that's what we'll do. What is the fear of God? What is that about? Well, before we talk about what is the right or godly fear of God, I should talk about the ungodly fear of God. The ungodly fear is a fear that drives a person away from the Lord, drives him away. It's ungodly. The first time we see it really is in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.10, Adam and Eve have been caught uh, or if you will, the Lord is w- walking through the, uh, the garden and he says, where are you? As if he doesn't know. And Adam says, I heard the voice of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, just to be clear, it is good and it is right that Adam and Eve felt shame. Shame is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a conviction of the spirit that drives you to the Lord shouldn't drive you away from him. But what is happening here? Uh, they, are, they are fleeing from the Lord. They're not, it doesn't drive them to the Lord in mercy. Why? Because they're sinners now. They weren't before. And it's an ungodly fear that they have at this point. I like the way John Bunyan says it. John Bunyan, I've really good book on the fear of God. He was a guy who also wrote Pilgrim's Progress, you're familiar with. He says this, I call it ungodly fear because it begat in Adam, ungodly apprehensions of his maker, because it confined Adam's conscience to the sense of justice only, and consequently to despair. So as a believer, your fear of God is ungodly when, it wants to, when you want to run away from the Lord. That's not a godly fear. It's not what leads you to the Lord. There's other examples of this in the scriptures, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, verse 19 and 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai and there was thunder and lightning and there was fire on the top and the people were scared. And what's so interesting is what Moses says here. Uh, What the people say to Moses, they said in verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then Moses seems to get schizophrenic in what he says next. Stay with me. He says this to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you 
so that the fear of him may be before you so that you may not sin. He says, don't fear. And then he says that the fear of God may go before you. Which one is it, Moses? Well, he's talking about the ungodly fear. This sort of ungodly fear will cause you to be terrorized by God. And not only, strangely enough, are you terrorized by God, you also are really quick to test him and complain against him. Because this is what the Israelites did in the desert. They didn't fear God. They were terrorized of him sometimes. But by and large, they didn't fear him. So they tested him. They complained all the time. You see, the fear of God, fearing God rightly causes you to take actions to obey him. Fear of God wrongly, you test him, you complain. And when he shows up, you're terrorized, okay? Uh, Another example of this is in 1 Samuel 12, verse 20 and verse 24. If you remember the story there is that people of Israel want a king. And Samuel says, you have just rejected the Lord as your king by doing this. And so he says, if God is really upset with you, in essence, then you're going to hear thunder and lightning. And that didn't happen at that time, in that season in Israel. And sure, sure enough, thunder and lightning fell and the people are now terrorized. And what does Samuel tell them? First Samuel 12, 20, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't fear, don't turn aside. And then in verse 24, he says this, fear the Lord and serve him with truth and with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Are you catching this? There's a bad ungodly fear that you run away from God. And we'll see in just a moment, there's a good fear that drives you to the Lord in mercy. Finally, one other aspect is the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, verse 24 and 25. You remember the ruler goes away and he... Five talents, two talents, and one. And what's so fascinating, the master, he, he tells both the one that earned five more and two more. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. You know, come on into the joy of your master. And then the guy who has one, how much does he earn? Notice what he says to the master. He says, the lazy servant mischaracterizes him completely. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. You see what's happened? This servant's not afraid of the master. He's like, here. It's almost like he kicks, the, kicks it back to him. Here, it's yours. Take it. By the way, that's what happens with us. When we began to fall into sin, we don't fear the Lord the way we used to. We stopped coming to church. We're like, whatever. Be careful. You see, I have a good father, thankful for him, thankful for both my parents. Was I fearful of disobeying him? Well, some of you that had really bad dads, I'm sorry, but uh, for you that had some, some, some godly men as dads, I was, I was fearful of disobeying my dad. I was not fearful that he would torture me or cast me off, but I didn't like discipline. I fear as a son, not as a slave. I don't like the rod or the belt or the spoon or or whatever. And you know what I refer to. You didn't either. But I didn't fear him the way a son would. And at this point, some of you are saying, hold on, Jeff. I'm going to have to throw this one out. Is it best to obey God out of love instead of fear? Yes. 
That's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes. And yet, are there times that I obey the Lord out of fear? Yeah, sure. And then at this point, you go, wait, 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 wait. What about 1 John 4, 18? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears has not been perfected in love. Aha! I would say, what's the context? What is the context of 1 John 4? The context of 1 John 4 is this. God is love. And as a believer, if you obey the Lord because you are afraid of God, that he is somehow going to destroy you or damn you to hell, you don't understand what Jesus did for you on the cross. Christ has already been punished for my sins, even sins I haven't even thought of committing yet. Everyone. But does God discipline a believer? Yes. He does so to make us look more like Christ in his actions, and it's always done by the loving hand of our Father. So remember this, all your disobedience, all your sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross, right? Yeah, but is there discipline in a believer's life? Of course there is. And sometimes I fear God, and so I'm not gonna do that. Um, Let's talk godly fear. This is a fear that drives a person towards the Lord in his mercy and away from sin. We're gonna find out in Jeremiah 32, 40, it's a gift of God bestowed upon his people. He says this, I will put, the Lord says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. You see, the godly fear that you have is a gift of God. Unbelievers do not have this. It's foreign to them. Romans 3.18 refers to an unbeliever and says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, now be careful. I'm referring to godly fear. Can unbelievers have ungodly fear? Yes, that's the only kind they can have. Can they be terrified of God in the middle of the night? Yes, they can. And yet I will tell you that fear doesn't drive them to the Lord. They drive themselves away from the Lord. They put the car in drive and floor it away from the Lord. Proverbs 117, or rather 17 gives another example of godly fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some of us think that phrase means the fear of the Lord is the end of wisdom. No, it's not the end. It's, it's the beginning. The point of it is you have no wisdom whatsoever if you don't have at least the fear of God there in place. You're like up a creek without a paddle. Some of us may remember our teenage years at this point. Some of the things that we did. Some of us just remember six months ago. Um, I like what John Bunyan says about the fear of God. He says in this godly fear, would you grow in the grace of fear? Do you want to grow in the grace of fear? Then take heed to murmuring and a repining or a discontented heart. For that is not a heart for this grace of fear to grow in. Murmuring tends to destroy fear. For a murmuring spirit is such a one as it seems to correct God and find fault with his administrations. Where there is that, the heart is far from godly fear. And you go, well, that's just kind of my personality. I'm kind of a complainer and I complain against the Lord. Well, then I think you've just described a person that doesn't really fear God like they should. Not that I have got the corner on the market on this by any sense. Let me give you a couple of other verses. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, if you just thought fear of God was just an Old Testament concept. 
It says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, once again, when you became a believer, you were justified, you were given faith and repentance, you were born again, you are, when God puts on, if you were, if he will, glasses, he sees you through the blood of Christ, you are righteous in his sight, but the fact is you still have the flesh, that evil residue around your new heart, and it causes you to do things that you shouldn't do. And what Paul is calling for by inspiration of the Spirit is says, we cleanse ourselves from that stuff. We walk in the fear of God, knowing that the Holy Spirit is the one who actually does the cleansing. One more verse, Hebrews 5, 7, referring to Christ. Do you know Jesus himself even feared God, even though he was God or he is God? He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence which is the Greek term meaning reverence or fear. He was heard? I thought he went to the cross. It doesn't sound like he was heard. No, he was heard. And at the end of it, Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. So you see, Jesus Christ himself feared his father. It was a godly fear that he had. It didn't drive him to despair. It drove him to prayer. Continue on with the text, and I think it'll prove itself out. Verse 16 through 18. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. First, he tells you in verse 16, I didn't acquire any land. That's not a complaint. What is he saying? Previous governors would commandeer land from the farmers who were in debt. He would just take over the land. Nehemiah says, we didn't do that. I even supported these men out of my own funds. At my table were 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us. That means it wasn't just 150 people that he fed every day, but there were others that came from other parts of the territories. There were, in all likelihood, Jews, and he even fed them. Every day, one ox, six choice sheep, birds, every 10 days, all kinds of wine. And you say, that's a lot of food. Solomon beats him, 1 Kings 4.23, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That's a lot of people. Why does he keep feeding people? Well, that was a Persian custom. And uh, so what the Persians expected Nehemiah to do was to really tax you folks in a big way and then take that money and feed these uh, people. Nehemiah didn't do that. He took it out of his own funds, which is fascinating to think about. Why? Because the people, they were so heavy with taxes and he loves the people and he fears God. He says this, I did all this. I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. So what is Nehemiah doing? He is legitimately giving up his rights. Why? Why? because he fears God. 
the right thing to do. It wouldn't be the wrong thing for him to, to take this money either, just to be clear. Who else does this? Is there anybody else in the Bible that does this kind of stuff? Well, Paul does this. In 1 Corinthians 9, 14, he says, the Lord commands that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's not a problem. I'm thankful for that, actually, personally. But Paul foregoes that right. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he does it with the Corinthians. He does it with the Thessalonians. He says, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. If Paul had taken money for preaching the gospel, that would not have been bad at all. And yet he says, we're not going to do it. Because the people in particular needed to see that we are not giving you the word of God for money, which is what a lot of the false teachers were doing. And he says, no, just to make it clear, we're not going to do that. I'm going to go ahead and start making tents, which is what he did for a living. And he was able to use that money to live on. So what are we talking here? Was Paul the only person? I think Paul got that example from Nehemiah. Well, maybe not. Romans 15, two and three says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. If people ever complain, and I know this happens sometimes with music, I haven't heard it as much here, but many times churches, they want more modern stuff. People want more uh, things that written 500 years ago, a few hundred years ago, and there's people complain, this sort of stuff. And I think when it comes down to it, in some sense, we should all die just a little bit for the sake of our neighbor, right? So this is what the Bible's telling us. Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It's not about me. Who's the example? Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, consider one another is more important than yourselves. For even Christ did not please himself, we see. Have this mind, which was in, also in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? When he walked into a room, he considered others as more important than himself. But he's sinless. He's the God-man. These people are like, you know, figurines of clay. He's the only God. Yep. And he considered others more important than himself. So he would lay down his life so Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, is writing that we should be doing the same thing that he did. Verse 19, he kind of closes this time off, and he says, remember for my good, O God, all that I've done for this people. Now this, to me, would be strange to hear because it almost sounds like self-promotion. <laughs> Nehemiah's going, hey, don't forget all this good I did, remember? Remember? It's interesting. Those are, those are common prayers by, by pagans, actually. Nebuchadnezzar, he writes to the god Marduk, which we know is no god. There's only one god. And he writes, O Marduk, my Lord, do remember my deeds according, uh, favorably as good. May my good deeds be always before your mind. And at this point, you're scratching your head going, why is Nehemiah saying this? Well, I'm going to give you a few reasons. We don't know exactly. Number one, it could be a real lack of gratitude the people were having. The creditors, we know, were not happy with him. Maybe the poor were not thankful for all that he is giving to them. And so it's like he's saying, they could care less about this. Lord, would you remember me for these things? Could be. That's conjecture. We don't know. And yet it's also important to 
point out, number two, it's not wrong to be rewarded, is it? Is it wrong to want reward? Well, it depends. Are you trying to get your approval from other people, from your friends, from the government, or do you want to be approved by the Lord and you want to be rewarded by him knowing that you will just cast that crown back at his feet? Matthew 6.33 tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be granted to you as well. Jesus continues to say, rewards are coming. And some of you go, oh, that bothers me. We shouldn't work for Jesus for rewards. I agree. But also when the master's telling you, I'm gonna reward y'all, he doesn't condemn being rewarded. Um, he doesn't condemn the practice. And so maybe that's what Nehemiah is saying. Lord, I wanna be rewarded by you at the end of the day. I play for the audience of one in some sense, yes. And one other aspect, it could be gener- just the whole generosity. There's, there's a huge theme of generosity in Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter one, verse one, Cyrus offers to rebuild the temple with royal funds. Ezra 1.5, the Lord stirs up the hearts of the Jews to go to Jerusalem and to give money to the work. 2 Corinthians 9.11 tells us, commands us, be generous in every way. Y'all may see outside of this wall out here, we've got kind of six identities or characteristics of a disciple. He's a servant, family member, student, proclaimer, worshiper, giver is one of them. I I like the definition that was not my own. A A disciple is a person whose giving displays the infinite value of Jesus. This is not a giving sermon, to be clear. Just as a side note, we need to be generous people. How could we not be? We've been given everything. C.T. Studd, the missionary, English cricketer, missionary to China and Africa, said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. In conclusion, I'll give you 10 I don't believe in the whole three points thing. I mean, come on, y'all are sharper than this. (laughs) 10 effects of godly fear. It's not new with me. Uh, John Bunyan wrote about this in the book. It's a good book. This book is very scriptural, which I always love. There's more than these, but 10 that he picks out from scripture and it comes forth from the text, I believe. Number one, um, it turns you away from evil when you fear God rightly. Not wrongly, but rightly. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16.6, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Um, We see in Luke 23, as as the two men on either side of Jesus are mocking Jesus, there's a certain point where God saves one. (laughs) It's a fascinating story. Luke 23.40, he looks at the other guy and says, he rebukes him and says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? I can imagine the other guy looking at him and going, well, we were just mocking him a moment ago and the Lord has saved him. But the, the point of this new righteous man, as he says, Lord, remember me when you're coming to your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He looks at that man and says, don't you fear God? The point is when we fall into particular sins, we're not fearing God. Number two, it directs a man towards God's mercy. I've made that very clear towards God's mercy. As Peter is saying in essence in Acts 2, you killed your own savior, folks. 
What happens? Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're scared and directs them to God's mercy. Number three, it promotes self-denial. That's what we're seeing in Nehemiah 5. 5. Uh, and in the, the, really this whole chapter. Colossians 3.22 says, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It promotes self-denial. Let me tell you this. If you don't fear God, you're not gonna deny yourself, period. Number four, promotes love to the saints. Promotes love to the saints. First Kings 18, three and four. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took 100 prophets and hid them by 50s in a cave and fed them with bread and water. He fears God. He's gonna love God's people. Number five, hopes in the mercies of God. Hopes in the mercies of God. Psalm 147, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Acts 9, 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So as a side note, I would say this, you're hoping in something today. I guarantee you are. Some of you are hoping in a future marriage, future kids, future job, whatever. Are you hoping in the Lord? That's the only one that doesn't fail you. Number six, delights in the Lord's commands. Delights in the Lord's commands. Psalm 112 verse one, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. If you are struggling today to eradicate sin in your life, it's never gonna happen. <laughs> but if you're trying to, in particular, certain sins that you're really trying to fight, a big way to fight them is the fear of the Lord and also the positive side by delighting in his commands. And I would encourage you today, whether you think that somehow I'm telling you to do all this stuff, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Amen? If you're feeling this burdens I'm putting on your back, I'm not. I'm saying the fear of the Lord, the Holy Spirit does this in you and through you, and yea, even in spite of you. And yet, the Spirit, he calls us at the same time to fear him as well. Number seven, he will have no lack. Now you're like, now you're teaching prosperity gospel. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Psalm 34, nine. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Nothing, in, so the idea is no lack, like the Lord will take care of you. And I'm not saying it's always gonna be good in your eyes. It'll be good, it'll be for your good, but it won't be good in your eyes many times. But I love what John Bunyan says. It's really Romans 8, 28, that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to what he says. Nothing that God sees good for them shall those people want who fear the Lord. If health will do them good, if sickness will do them good, if riches will do them good, if poverty will do them good, if life will do them good, if death will do them good, then they shall not lack for them. Neither shall any of these come near them if they will not do them good. 
Three more. Number eight, it makes you bold. It makes you bold. King Saul in 1 Samuel 18, he's king of the land. He's the biggest man in the land. And who's he scared to death of? David, a young man with a ruddy complexion who just killed Goliath. And I would say this, I think this proves itself out in scripture. As fear of man increases, fear of God decreases. And the flip side is fear of God increases, fear of man decreases. Nehemiah 1.11, Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your servant be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this king. Give me boldness today. And the fear of God promotes that. Proverbs 28.1, that wicked flee though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Number nine, keeps you safe, keeps you safe. Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but he who, he who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And some of you say, wait, hold on a sec. I know people that were fearing God and they were not kept safe. And I would say this, your definition of safety is wrong. We have 2 Timothy four eighteen, as the apostle Paul is about to lose his head, literally, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So I guess the concept of safety is not nothing bad will happen to me. I think the concept of safety is that the Lord in his eternal power will keep me all the way until I arrive safely to his heavenly kingdom. By the way, I love the way Justin Martyr said it in the second century just 40 years after the last apostle died, maybe 50, he says to his people that are killing him, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. Keep you safe. And number 10, this might be precious to a few of you today, it causes you to trust the Lord. Fear of God causes you to trust the Lord when life makes no sense. Isaiah 50, verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, what it means has no light, it doesn't mean he's an unbeliever. It means he's completely ignorant of God's ways. What is God doing here? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Why? Because he fears the Lord. I've already said it once and I'm gonna say it a second time. Fear of God is not, these are not burdens for you to carry. I have to fear God. I have to fear God. No, you need to pray the Lord. And the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, will cause you to fear the Lord. Beg him for it. Tell him honestly, God, I don't fear you. I know I should. Cry out to him today. The Lord will do it for you. But you have to trust him. So one last story, we'll close up. This is a person who really sets forth to me the fear of God, a lady named Juliana. Many of you don't know the horrible situation that's happening in some parts of Nigeria. There's a Muslim terrorist organization known as Boko Haram. Since 2009, when the outbreak of Boko Haram Islamic insurgency broke out, over 50,000 Nigerian Christians have been killed. An Open Doors report from May 2023 states that every two hours a Christian is killed, while many others are being abducted and raped. Juliana, on the evening before Easter 2012, 
The Jesse family, of which he was a part, around 11 p.m. heard bombing in the distance. In less than two hours, Boko Haram militants were burning down the church next door and pounding on the gate in front of their home. Juliana just finished helping her husband hide in one of the back bedrooms, covering him with clothes. He was one of, leaders, one of the leaders of the church next door. She prayed, God, we are in your hands. Several militants entered to search the house while others dragged Juliana into the courtyard, striking her with guns and taunting her about her faith. You Christians say God has a son. You call on that son. Today is your last day. Your life is over. They then forced her to kneel. If you don't tell us where your husband is, we will kill you. Juliana refused, saying this, even though I see your gun, I will not fear you. One of the men gave a shout from inside the house. He had found Juliana's husband. The militants dragged the man into the courtyard and instructed him to renounce Christ. He remained silent. While Juliana's mother shouted out, Jesus, the militants ordered Juliana's husband to lie down and they shot him four times. Before leaving, they ransacked and burned the home. Juliana pulled her dying husband into her lap and prayed. He uttered a final amen at the end of her prayer before he went home to be with Jesus. Since the death of her husband, Juliana has raised nine children. She had to raise them without her husband, yet she is still trusting and fearing the Lord Jesus Christ, the husband of his bride, the church. And because she fears the Lord, she loves the Lord. And because she loves the Lord, she fears the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, we know ultimately that you cause these graces to live in us. And so we pray that you would grant that. We pray that you would have mercy upon us, Lord. We don't fear you as we should. Many of us have false conceptions of what the fear of God is all about. I pray for anybody in here that has not really come to know the Savior and finds himself or herself running from him today. I pray that you would grant them salvation today, that they would come to trust Jesus Christ alone for their salvation knowing that they carry nothing but sins to his doorstep. Lord, help us all as believers that we would live in this way, that we would long to wait for the kingdom to come and that he would come soon. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen.